Welcome to Word is Truth. This is Doug Presley. It is 1-4-2023. Welcome to the new year. And we are ready to begin our worship service. Let's have a word of prayer. We thank you, Father, for this time we have this evening. We thank you for life, health, and strength as you have brought us to a new year. We recognize many did not make it. Uh, to 2023. So we pray for those who lost loved ones in uh, this past year and those who um, were sick and there are so many circumstances in 2022 that uh, all we can do is ask for comfort for those who lost loved ones. Also, Father, we pray as we open our study, this this first study of the year, that um, you will give us wisdom as we approach not only the direction we're going for this year, but that you would give us the wisdom in each verse, each phrase, each word that we focus on. Uh, also, Father, continuing the thought of our introspection, that we would look at ourselves, that we would be able to look inward to see where we're going this year. What, what are we doing? Give us um, clarity so that we can focus on our purpose in this world. So we thank you, Father, for again, for bringing us to 2023. And uh, our prayers are with all of our, uh, the sister church we have, which is the word of truth under Mike Presley, and we pray for all of the members there. Uh, we're asking that you would do something uh, in terms of what we want to do this year. That you would give us clarity about how to move forward as far as our churches are concerned. All of this we ask in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. All right. <clears throat> we are ready... To begin our first, well, we actually met on Sunday, just to note, although we did not, uh, we didn't record because we were really talking about things, goals that we had in mind that we wanted really to keep private to some degree. And it was about introspection, as I sort of alluded to in the prayer. That introspection is important for us to stop and look at ourselves. <clears throat> Have you looked at yourself lately? Where are you going? And all of those questions we talked about. Are you coming into the fruition of your gift? How do you contribute in the body? All those questions. I want us to take January to think about that. So I'm, I will mention it again maybe with more specificity so that we can get uh, this, this thought ingrained in our thinking a little bit. Just We don't have to keep looking at ourselves the whole time, but I just want us to make sure we do spend some time trying to evaluate our own spiritual lives. And of course, we will get back on the horse and keep right on riding as we go forward. So we have before us Romans 11 and 30 today. We will have some time for Q&A. We just have a short verse 
Uh, we're going to take some time right now. It's Romans 11.30. It says, just as you were at one time disobedient to God, have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience. As we think about Israel's troubles, we are determined to discuss how they will succeed. Since we know God's mind, it is appropriate that we reflect his mind regarding the future of Israel. God never saw Israel as a failure, even when they were at their worst. We are reminded that Gentiles had their time when they resisted God, but now are part of God's eternal purpose. The reality is that God never lost confidence in the Gentiles either. He always knew about our calling as well. So we, we are not dealing with somebody who reacts <clears throat> in time as we do. Something happens, we have to decide how we're going to handle it, what decision we're going to make. God already knows. It's a different perspective. Now, of course, we don't know everything that's going to happen to us. So we will be reactionary to some degree going forward. But where God has given us clarity and instruction about things, then we will depend on that. We, will, we shouldn't depend to our own thinking when God has given us clear instructions about what will happen, especially with respect to Israel. So it's a small verse. We're going to hit, uh, get through this, uh, a couple phrases, and then we'll have some time for Q&A. So the first point is just as you were at one time disobedient to God. So there's just a few points here. There is no question that the Gentiles, who is speaking of as you were disobedient, the Gentiles were in a category of rebellion. And it was their own category. I mean, the kind of things that Gentiles were involved in, uh, well, I guess I should just read about it. Let's go to Romans chapter 1, and we'll just start with some of, we, we should, I could just tell you the Gentiles were very bad. <laughs> I could tell you that. But I want you to see some of the bad that they were involved in. So let's go to Romans 1, 21 through 31. You've read these before, but in the context we're in, at this point, God is saying that we were disobedient. So let's see what he means. Verse 21, for although they knew God, he's talking about Gentiles here, they neither glorified him as God nor give thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being, and birds, and animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in, their sinful in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. 
Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they, they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. And they have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Just reading that should give you some of the flavor of what these Gentiles were involved in. I think Gentiles today <clears throat> have evolved uh, somewhat from some of these things, but, but not all. I think the evolution, when I say they have evolved, has also turned to evil. So it's not like they have evolved and gotten better. They have evolved and gotten worse. But there's one thing through these, this passage that I'd like to at least point out is that God kept saying that this rebellion is because they have received light. There are, there are passages in here, passages here that sort of say it. Uh, for Look at verse 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and so forth. And it goes on they, in verse 25. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Well, you know, and it goes on. In the face of light, they turned to darkness. But this is also to say that God was busy working in the hearts of these Gentiles. This is not just God describing the depravity of Gentiles. He's showing you what happens uh, to these Gentiles who rebelled against the light that they had. So keep that in mind. It is not just about, oh, how bad these Gentiles are. It is the fact that these Gentiles rebelled in the face of light that was presented to them. Verse 28, furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind. So again, it is all throughout the passage, God is letting us know that these Gentiles had opportunity. And I didn't even read the most important verse, which was probably verse 20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. So God is saying 
It's not like there is the absence of my presence among the Gentiles. He's saying that they rejected me. That's how they got to the places where they were. That's just point one. Let's go to point B, uh, point B in our notes, 1B. Gentiles were also given to idolatry. Let's read some of that. Isaiah 44. Let's go to Isaiah Old Testament passage to try to dig this out. Isaiah 44, uh, 9 through 20. So all who make idols are nothing, and the things they treasure are worthless. Listen to this. I mean, we can invest a whole lot into this world and the things of this world, but God is pretty much telling you straight what is what it all amounts to, worthless. Uh, and this is some of the pursuits that the Gentiles were involved in. Those who speak up for them are blind. They are ignorant to their own shame. Who shapes a God and casts an idol which can profit nothing? People who do that will be put to shame. Their craftsmen, craftsmen are only human beings. Let them all come together and take their stand. They will be brought down to terror and shame. The blacksmith takes a tool and works with it in the coals. He shapes an idol and hammers. He forges it with the might of his, his arm. He gets hungry and loses his strength. He drinks no water and grows faint. The carpenter measures with a line and makes an outline with the marker. He roughs it with, roughs it out with chisels and marks it with compasses. He shapes it in the human form, human form in all its glory, that it may dwell in a shrine. Now, just to note, a shrine is where they had many idols, often taught would be on top of hills and hillsides where they would go up and they would worship these idols and get involved in all sorts of debauchery. Verse 44, 14. He cuts down cedars or perhaps took a cypress or oak. He let it grow among the trees of the forest or planted a pine and the rain made it grow. Okay, so this is, I can keep going. Uh, I think I just want to read this last part. Uh, let's see, 17. Oh, oh let's, let's go to 15. It is used for fuel, for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. He also fashions a god and worships it. This is out of the same pile of wood. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half of the wood he burns in the fire. Over, over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and eats it to eats his fill. He also warms himself and says, "Ah, I am warm. I see the fire." From the rest, he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, "Save me! You are my god." They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see, and their minds are closed so they cannot understand. No one stops to think. No one has the knowledge or understanding to say. Half of it is used for fuel. I even baked bread over the coals. I roasted meat and I ate. Shall I make a, detest, uh, a detestable thing from what is left? 
Shall I bow down to a block of wood? And it goes on, but <clears throat> I just wanted to give you an idea of what Gentiles were involved in. Point C, the Apostle Paul goes into detail about how we are not to live the Christian life according to the way of the Gentiles. And I'll, I should, this is a quick one, Romans, no, 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 it's Ephesians chapter 4, 17 through 20. Ephesians 4, 17 says, <clears throat> So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. Now, this is, here we go. In the futility of their thinking. You saw that in Romans 1 as well. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Do, notice, due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. And I would just add verse 20. That, however, is not the way of life you learned. So God is telling us the way of the Gentiles we should not, we should depart from that life. That is not characteristic of what the Christian life is. And I will end this whole negative thought of how terrible the Gentiles are <clears throat> with this verse in Ephesians 5.12. And it simply says, it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. So what that, what that is to say, what I've always understood that to say, <clears throat> we don't want to go too far in describing evil because some of it can cause uh, you to go astray. And it, it is shameful even to talk about such things because they are so evil. And, dis, and once you go down this road, it becomes a slippery slope. So... Remember, all of us came from the place of where we had the sin nature and, and don't think that your sin nature is somehow refined and cannot be involved in such things. So Paul says it best here in Ephesians 5.12, it is shameful even to mention, to talk about such things of what these people are doing. Point E, we're moving forward. While we can clearly see the disobedience of the Gentile world, we must remember that they were the mission field of Israel. So, so God, first of all, we see two things. One, God had not abandoned the Gentiles. Just because Israel failed in their missionary activities, partly, I mean, largely, let me just say, not partly, largely because they refused the gospel themselves. They refused grace uh, and were judging people by the works of the law and by the law. So instead of them going out and giving the Gentiles the gospel of grace, they separated themselves, saw them as heathens and very disobedient to God. And, and to them, they felt like it was a, they should separate 
from the Gentiles instead of giving them the gospel. A good example of this is when Jonah was told to go to Nineveh. Well, <laughs> Jonah knew how horrible and evil the Ninevites were. In fact, even though Jonah went the opposite direction and all of that, and then God had to turn him around with the whole story about you know the big fish coming and swallowing Jonah and then spitting him up on the land, and then Jonah finally going into the town of Nineveh, doing what God told him to do. After it was all over, Jonah was mad. He was mad. He said, I knew if I went there, you would relent and not discipline them. Jonah was mad because he wanted God to clobber the Ninevites. And God didn't do it. He withheld you know, the, the wrath because Israel, Nineveh did repent. Enough in Nineveh repented so that it would stay the hand of God's wrath. So that's interesting. Jonah's attitude is interesting. I know the Ninevites were evil. I know they did some horrible things, wicked things. But listen, look at look at Jonah's attitude. Remember, the Gentiles were supposed to be their mission field. That's where they were supposed, and they refused. Literally, instead of Jonah going to Nineveh, he went the opposite direction. He said, "I'm headed to Tarshish." So, so this is interesting as we think about this. This was characteristic of the attitude of Israel. We're moving forward. Let's keep going. Point number two. So, so the whole phrase is, just as you were, you who were at one time disobedient to God, he's talking to Gentiles. Point number two says, have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience. <clears throat> so, how do we understand this? So first, first point is now received mercy. This, this is the phrase. This is a reference to the calling that includes the Gentiles into the body of Christ and into the role formerly held by Israel. So if I go to Romans 11, where we already covered it, but it's always good to look at the context here. So what does it mean receiving this mercy? How did, it, how did they do it? So here's how it goes. Again, verse 11, I ask, did they stumble? Did they, Israel, stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. When it says salvation has come to the Gentiles, it does not mean all Gentiles were saved. Well, there were definitely some Gentiles who were saved, but what it meant was, as a result of Israel being taken out as God's nation, you know, God removed them in discipline. So the Gentiles now in the church are now in the role that Israel had. That's the point. And so what does it mean to receive mercy? Or in this verse 11, uh, salvation has come to the Gentiles. It just means that God has now placed them into this role. And this role is not our role. This is not for us. But God has give, given us this blessing, or we could say this responsibility, however you want to look at it. 
So this rose, and then verse 12. But if their transgression means riches for the world, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, <clears throat> notice the riches for the Gentiles, he's talking about what God has done in the church. How much greater riches will their full inclusion be? So God is saying when it all works out, Israel is going to come back and do their, they're going to do their thing. They're going to take the reins again and they're going to do uh, fantastic work in the world regarding uh, what God wants them to do. As we read in um, Matthew 24, which says that the, this everlasting gospel will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations. And then shall the end come. So this is going to be a crescendo, a climax, where Christ is going to come through the sky and save those who are waiting for him. So, so that was point A. We're going to point B. Uh, 2B, the way it worked out through God's providence, just as Israel was at the height of their disobedience, this also was the time to begin the process of bringing many sons into glory. So, so it kind of worked out. I say through God's providence, but think about it this way. God already knew this was coming. I'm going to Galatians 4, 4 through 7. So it, it just worked out that he couldn't bring the church on board until Christ had finished the work. He couldn't do that. But he knew that Israel was going to fail. He understood that. Even in the Old Testament, we saw signs of and prophecies that Israel would fail. If we look at Isaiah 28, God even pronounces the judgment on Israel because they would fail. So this, this is not a, uh, news to God. God didn't wait and figure it out. So yeah, they're going to fail. I'm going to have to judge them. He knew he was going to judge them. So Galatians 4, 4 through 7, let's read it. <clears throat> But when the set time have fully come, now that set time is the church age. So we're, we're going to see what led up to the church age. It had to be God had to send Christ. Christ had to be go through the death, burial, and resurrection, and the ascension, because it wasn't until he was seated at the right hand of the Father that he could then ask the Father to pour out his Spirit upon everyone in the church. So <clears throat> that was a unique event. So, but this is, it, all those things had to be in place. But when the set time, verse 4, had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we, when he says we, he's not just talking about Jews, might receive adoption to sonship because you are his sons god sent the spirit of his son into your our hearts the spirit who calls out abba father so you are no longer a slave but god's child and since you are his child god has also made you an heir <clears throat> or god has made you also an heir i flipped those words around but but that it talks about timing. It had to happen at a particular time. It couldn't just happen any old time. So God allowing the mystery to be revealed had to happen on the back of Christ, not only his life on earth, 
his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and session. Uh, so it looked, looked like if you figured it, God knew it all the time. But if you look at it from our perspective, it's like, oh, this kind of worked out just perfectly. Just as Israel had to be uh, set aside because of disobedience, God is now working with the church. So he gives the church the responsibility as ambassadors, just like Israel should have been. So, so he continues to have his boots on the ground as well as the church uh, fulfilling his eternal purpose. Point C, once Jews and Gentiles believe in Christ, we, should, we already know this, <clears throat> in this age, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's Galatians 3.27 and 28. So just, just to say that even though we're talking about Jews and Gentiles, right? It's a lot about Israel going on here. But in this particular age that we happen to be in, there is no Jew or Gentile. Even though we've been talking about Gentiles in Romans 11, once a person's in Christ, there is no Jew or Gentile. That's the reality. And it talks about this in terms of our role, the role we have in Christ, that is. Point D, Israel had a hard time transitioning to the new age, but the new age isn't to blame for all their troubles. And this is Acts 7, 51, 52. We've read it before, but you could say, oh, Israel, some might, might have the opinion, Israel <clears throat> rebelled against, they crucified Christ. And then they persecuted the church. We already read the verse where it says, as, for, as far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sakes. But as far as the election is concerned, the calling that they receive, they are loved on the account of the patriarchs. So we saw that already. And we saw that, yeah, they're certainly antagonistic toward the church. But when you look at this, this talks about not just what happened in the first century. This was generational for the Jews. They had come, remember we talked about the big lie where they thought, okay, we don't need grace or because we got the law. Acts 7, 51 and 2 says, you stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. And here is the important verse. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. So not only were the Jews resisting the Holy Spirit, guess who also was resisting the Holy Spirit? The Gentiles. We already saw that. 52. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed the one who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. So terrible. Jews are at the height of their disobedience. That's how we would understand that, the height of their disobedience. And <clears throat> so we can't blame what happened in the church and the mystery age for all the problems the Jews had. They would had problems way prior to the church beginning or we get it, uh, us getting to the first century. Uh, all you got to do is read Isaiah. If you start reading Isaiah, or there's a lot of places you can read where it details the disobedience of Israel. All right, so point E, we're moving on. I know we're almost done. 
what we can say is given the state of man, whether Jew or Gentile, it is a wonder that God would provide us with the privilege to be a part of his eternal purpose. And I make this point to say, both Jew and Gentiles have proven to be, <laughs> let's use the word disobedient as the scripture does. Both have proven to be disobedient, maybe in different ways, but what a mess, I should say. What a mess. And, and yet God has chosen Israel, and yet God has chosen the church. He, he does not give up. He sees the best in us. Uh, I, I like what it says. Hope believes, believes all things, right? This, oh, no, he says love. Let me just read it. It's 1 Corinthians 13. It's love believes all things. Let me read it. <clears throat> so he says, um, this is interesting. Uh, verse, oh gosh, where are we want to start? Oh, here. Verse 3. If I, give, if I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship, I may boast. But I, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, it is kind, does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, rejoices in the truth. Always, it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always preserves. There it is, always trust. I mean, in love, God chose us. And when he chose us in love, it means he invested in us. He trusts something to us. He hopes something for us. So God is telling us the kind of love that he has. And it is important that we emulate that type of love. We have to see past the ignorance, the disobedience, the stubbornness, the stiff-necked and uncircumcised in hearts and ears, and see toward eternal purpose. That's why he says, uh, yeah, they're enemies because of the gospel, and they hate you. But as far as the election is concerned, I love them because of the patriarch. I made proud. God could see past the disobedience, the negative behavior to what is really important, what he promises. I'd say it's a privilege to be a part of God's eternal purpose, knowing who we are and where we came from, the kind we were separate from God's promises and his, all of the things. We were in Israel. And I won't read Romans 3, 14 through 18 because we've had enough about how terrible we are. But you could read it, but you've read it before about poison of vipers is on their lips and so forth. And feet are shift quick to, quick to um, shed blood and Ruin and misery mark their ways. Point F, we're moving forward. With great blessing. And if you look at Ephesians 1.3, man, that is a pinnacle. Ephesians 1.3 says, 
Praise be to God, the Father our Lord of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. That's blessing. I mean, that's we can't ask for more than what he has already said in that verse. So, but great blessing comes great responsibility. And you should remember when we play with these words, right? We said baptism, what's the word that comes to mind? Identification. We said um, um, forgiveness, what comes to mind? Reconciliation. So here's another one. When we talk about blessing, what comes to mind? What should come to mind is responsibility. God didn't just bless you for any reason, for no reason. He has a reason as to why he has elevated us and that we are part of his eternal purpose. So let's look at, <clears throat> so it comes great responsibility. Not only are we ambassadors for Christ, we already saw that in 2 Corinthians 5.20, but we are, all, we are at the heart of God's eternal purpose. If I go to Ephesians 3, 10, and 11, we'll close with this passage. It talks about it this way. His intent was that now, through the church, through the agency of the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we... That is who we really are. We're just playing the role of Israel for a time, temporarily, and, and Israel will soon take it back. When I say soon, as soon as Christ comes and catches us up, and, and we will always then be with the Lord in this role. So <clears throat> we've come to the end of our notes, and we just have opportunity for some Q&A. I know that we do have a question on the table, and I will just ask Fred to raise that question. Uh, it's in Matthew 7, I believe, isn't it? But I'll talk to Fred, and if Fred is still there, the floor is open. Oh, wait a minute. Can you hear me? Yes, I do. All right, go right ahead. I'm sorry. Okay, that the scripture is uh, Matthew uh, chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. I'm going to read them. It says, Enter through the natural gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And, men, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Um, I want to <clears throat> parallel that scripture, those two scriptures, um, with Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, which we're all familiar with. Uh, it says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God. 
not by works, so that no one can boast. So my question is simply that something that's giving salvation is given through grip. In other words, it's, it's a, you don't have to work for it. The only thing you have to do is believe it. It's a free gift. So why is it that the majority, as it states in Matthew 7, 13, and 14, that the majority of Earth's history, the people, they reject the free gift and they never find it? That's my question. Okay, yeah, I, I hear you. And it does sound a little bit defeating when you hear what the statistics are where Jesus is saying that, uh, telling us to enter in at the narrow gate. <clears throat> and it is instruction for us to go a certain way. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many, many are going that way. But small is the gate, narrow is the road that leads to life, only a few find it. So we have statistics here that do seem very lopsided. And it, you would have to wonder... Why? Because what is being offered here is eternal salvation. Uh, so here, here's a couple thoughts. I know Bill and Dave talked about this earlier. I'll just reiterate some of it. But just to note, <clears throat> it is offered, a gift is offered to us. You can't take a gift. It can only be received. The only proper way to receive a gift has to be according to the way God says you have to receive it. You have to receive it as a gift. You cannot receive it with works. So remember Romans eleven six, 6, where it says, and if it's by grace, <clears throat> then it is no longer by works. Otherwise, Grace is no longer grace. So if God did all the work, remember, we can't do any work because of the bad news. We're dead in our transgressions and sins. By nature, we, you know, we, we have a sin nature. We, have, we, we are condemned. There's all these things that are against us because of the bad news. But yet, man doesn't want to believe the bad news. So they, they try to take the gift by means of works. So the only way we can fail to receive the gift, we can't take the gift, we can only receive it, is by grace. It is by through believing in Christ. It is by grace through faith. And faith is the only non-meritorious thing we have as human beings in, our, in the state of condemnation that can take hold of the gift of life. So if we don't have this non-meritorious faith, if we try to fool God and say, yeah, okay, God, you say believe, I believe, but really in your heart, it's far from him, well, you won't get it. You have already gone the broad way. So that's the thought that I have about, um, but there's more, there's more. If you look at, <clears throat> think about that, what I just said, and think about what's going on here, where Jesus is literally preparing these people for the tribulation. 
that's pretty much what it is. Um, if you look at um, verse 15, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. These are instructions for uh, Israel. These are not instructions for the world, for, for in general. Although, <clears throat> you could make a point, and by application, that when Christ speaks, wide is the gate, and many go in through that way, and small and narrow leads to life, and only a few find. You could make the point that this is characteristic of the entire human race. You could make that point. But what we see here is Christ talking about what would happen in the tribulation, I think. This is where, where he's coming from. This is the context. And uh, when we think about that, the main characters, the beast, the false prophet, right? Where they make the image to the beast, right? All of that is going on. And what's going on in, in the world is the woman who sits atop of the beast with seven heads and ten horns, this woman is ecumenical religion. So it says that all kinds of uh, horrible things, if you go back to Revelation uh, chapter seven, 17 and so forth, you'll see some of this played out. What is common in the world among all the religions? What is the common denominator? Let's just put it this way. The lowest common denominator of all these religious systems that come together. They don't all believe the same things. They don't all practice the same things. But one thing is common to all of them. They believe that you have to work your way to receive eternal life. And I believe that the religions of the world will come together around that false thinking. And the only way that this woman can marshal all the religions of the world through these means would be on ground that they all agree on. And that is that you have to have works for salvation. So just think about what's going on in the tribulation. The Jews, or Israel, will be back in play. And they will be the only ones who will be talking about salvation. What does it say in Matthew 24? Same thing. Uh, let's read it. Uh, it says, uh, um, here it is, verse 14. And... This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony notice to all nations. This is exactly what Israel was called to. They're a nation, God's priest nation, to other nations. This is the point that Israel came into existence. God made them a nation, but it was to other nations. So, this one nation, Israel, is going out with the everlasting gospel, right? The gospel of the kingdom. And they're preaching it to all nations, and then the end will come. Notice Israel is back in place. This is in the tribulation. They're performing as God would have them perform. 
So what do we see in the tribulation? Most people in the tribulation will not believe because of the dynamics that I just told you about. The beast who does eventually persecute and destroy the woman and takes her power, which means now he is exacting worship from all the people in the world. So it is his objective to garner not only a he's a political power, but he desires worship. He sits in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And you could read in Revelation 13, there's a lot more information about what he would do to all the world wandered after the beast. And then this false, the false prophet came, uh, you know, and he tried to compel all to receive a mark in their forehead or in their hand. And, and, and then if they didn't, they'd be persecuted. All of that goes on in the tribulation and it puts pressure on people, on nations. People are in the nations. <laughs> but notice, that is the goal. So what is it that they reject? They reject the gospel. They re the one thing that the world hates is the gospel. They can talk about any, religion hates the gospel. You can talk about anything else. You can talk about doing good works. And if you, if you fall in line with them doing good works, and that's the most important thing, they'll love you. But if you tell them that it's grace, you can't earn it, you can't deserve it. It is only through Christ that salvation can be had. They will persecute you. They will fight. They will twist and turn. So there it is. Only a few find it. And that is going to be the testimony. Notice, and this gospel is 24 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. It does not say all nations would then be saved because they believe the gospel. It will be as a testimony to all nations. God is giving them grace, literally grace, <laughs> before judgment. What's judgment? And then the end will come. And what's the end? Christ will come out of the sky. If you look at it, Revelation chapter 19, this is the end, right, coming. And it says, <clears throat> oh, well, there's, um, here it is. Let us rejoice. And this is verse 7, 19, 7, be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Fine linen for, stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Yeah. And it goes on and talks about verse 11. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. And he has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. And his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him and riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And it goes, coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down, look, 
the nations. Interesting. He will rule them with, a, with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Well, it goes on, but the point that I'm making here is I, I kind of have already said that the reason here is that this verse is couched in language that really is reserved for Israel. Israel will be back in play at this time that he's talking. I'm not saying that in the church is not true or, you know, that that, um, that it does not apply to all. We can make application. I think we can. But I think we can see right now, even as we are uh, in the world, and because we, we have the role of ambassadors and ministers of reconciliation, I think we can see the rejection and the hatred that comes with this one way of gospel. It is not like many religions have it. Only one group on earth has the gospel, and that is the church. And you could see the hatred. Even Jesus says, those who kill you will think that they are performing a service for God. So this is a part of, as I think, a greater picture that is before us. So I'm going to pause to see if there are comments, or Fred, if you have follow-ups. Go right ahead. Well, thank you. Uh, which goes straight to the, uh, that verse goes straight to the tribulation. And, um, you know, the time when the beast is raging, and, uh, <laughs> but it is central to in other words, there was still, it's the rejection of Christ. It's still the same issue. Um, yes. Yeah. It's the same issue in the tribulation as it is now in the church age. Absolutely. But uh, the emphasis at first is clearly, as I see it, um, on the tribulation. Not so much the church age. Uh, but Certainly, the same thing is going on in organized religion today. Yes. We can see that. Yeah, we can see it. Absolutely. Uh, but that's a great question. Thank you. Thanks for the thought. Uh, I'm going to ask if there are others out there who want to comment on it as well. Uh, the floor is open. Okay, I had a comment. Well, actually, it's a question. I don't know if we have time to, to really get in, into it. Uh, but it was uh, based upon the message that you just uh, did today. In, in regards to the inheritance, um, I know we did a lot of uh, uh, study on inheritance in the past, long, long ago. Yes. Um, but they, I, I, I recall a part of that inheritance that we've already received. And I don't know if you remember how that went from the time you, we, we studied it. Well, when you, are something you, that crossed my mind. Like I said, I don't know if you have enough time to get into it, but it'd be you, a great discussion. Are you referring to Israel's inheritance or the church's inheritance? The church, our inheritance. Yeah, so I would say, uh, yes, we have received some of it. There is... So there's a couple scriptures uh, I could turn you to. 
Um, first one will be in um, Ephesians 1, where it talks about uh, we're in Christ, and it also it says, uh, verse 13, you were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. That's how we got in Christ, is believing. When you believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit. So the, prom the Holy Spirit, which was promised, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So God has given us a deposit in the form of God, the Holy Spirit. So if we, so then if we go over to Romans, just to note Romans chapter eight, and we're looking at verse 23, you could read this. It says, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. So this is, first fruits of the Spirit is also a reference to Pentecost. And the way Paul is using this, meaning first fruits, a small portion of the, which is representative of the whole. And the, um, when we read the other passage, so also the deposit speaks of a small portion representative of the whole. If you got a deposit, it guarantees that we're going to get the whole. Well, we got the first fruits of the Spirit. It's another analogy used here, very similar. It says we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship. And what does it mean? The redemption of our bodies. So when we get our resurrection bodies, the fullness of everything that God has planned for us will be the reality. So this, this is to say we don't have the fullness of it now. We have some portion of it. The portion of it that we have now is, um, one, is about the knowledge of it. Right? It, is, it is all that God has given us, the riches of his uh, you know, inheritance in the saints, the un the unsearchable wealth that's ours. I like what, uh, the way it says it in Ephesians chapter 1, 18, where it says, um, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. And then he goes into the detail of power. But <clears throat> yes, we have received the deposit. We have the first fruits, a small portion. So that means we have the fullness of the understanding, which is the revelation of the mystery. But we don't have the fullness of experience yet. So we could see everything. And not only that, we have the spirit who testifies with our spirits. So we know that we belong, that we're sons and daughters of God. We know that who we are in Christ because the Spirit is, is in us, causing us to cry out, Father, understand the relationship of the position we're in as sons. But anyway, yeah, I think that, you know, for the sake of time, I could think of maybe one or two other scriptures that talk about this, but uh, there it is, the glorious inheritance in his holy people. I'll pause, Bill. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I remember that you had mentioned something about what we had received. I just couldn't quite put it all together. That was great. 
Yeah, this, I tell you, it is great, isn't it? The scriptures, the scriptures are replete with this information. It's clear. This is not ambiguous or obscure. It's out there. You can see it clearly that these things belong to us. This, and this, yes, it's it's a wonderful uh, revelation that God has given us. And I'd say we keep on going, right? We have the full knowledge of it. We won't have the full experience. There's no way. I keep asking, this is verse 17, that the Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. And we have the spirit so that we are given not only the understanding of who we are, but an inside testimony of who we are. As far as uh, we don't ever have to wonder or worry about who we are in Christ. So we're going to have to quit. I appreciate the questions and I wish we had a little more time. But uh, we'll, we'll pick this up again. Just remember where we are and we will end tonight. But we will be back next week. Uh, God willing, we'll be back Sunday uh, with uh, John chapter 17. So let's bow our heads as we close. Thank you, Father, for this time we've had. This evening, we saw the disobedience that Israel displayed in the face of everyone in the world. We saw the stubbornness that they displayed. But Father, we also see the glories that will belong to Israel. And just as we have also seen the disobedience of the Gentiles and how they were involved in every sort of evil that is imaginable and even a lust for more, we recognize, Father, that you still made Gentiles a part of your eternal purpose. We certainly don't deserve the responsibility that we have been given, that we've been blessed with. So Father, we pray that you will give us wisdom to look at these things about ourselves, to understand who we are in Christ in this new age and, and in this new year that we have before us. Thank you, Father, for bringing us here uh, to this point where we understand what the spirit of truth is saying to the churches. So we thank you for your word and your calling, and we pray that uh, you will bring us back next week as we continue to focus our attention on our journey in Christ. It is in Christ, it is his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.